welcome everybody and uh, welcome to my guest, John Slavik, who uh, I guess I have to use the perfunctory needs no introduction, right? So this is, <laughs> this is a guy everybody in the industry knows, is familiar to uh, almost everyone, or let's say everyone in the industry, and uh, a friend of mine, uh, John Slavic, founder and uh, overlord, et cetera, king of Slavic 401k uh, that is used by how many PEOs? How many clients? There are PEO clients, John? At 150. 150. An enormous uh, industry penetration. So, uh, yeah, we, we've been friends for a long time and we, we've talked about so many different things. And uh, so today I'm going to start at the beginning, start at the background. And I think. You know, maybe people know your background, and I really have been impressed by it. It's, it's uh, you know, the old saying, it's not where you are, it's where you started from. So you started in New York State. What town? I was born in Amsterdam, New York, the same hospital that Kirk Douglas was born in. Uh, that's where the whole Douglas clan sort of emanated from. I don't think we were in the same bassinet. I've never heard of him. Who, who's uh, John Slavic? I've heard of Kirk Douglas. I'm not familiar with. Okay, all right. He's a famous actor. Pat. Yeah, and Douglas's father. Oh yes, that's more my generation. Right. Yeah. Thank you, Michael Douglas. I I understand. Um, so what? Uh, uh, your parents owned a hotel. That's right. Mo motel. And what was what was your job there? What did where What did you start doing at that hotel? Well, when I was eight years old, everybody in the family had a job. So mm -hmm. uh, my mother and sister, all they had jobs. My job was to take care of the Coke machine. Mm -hmm. And so the, it was one of those old red small Coke bottle <laughs> machines that would take nickels and dimes. Mm -hmm. And so my job was to keep it stocked, count the money, <laughs> and then give the money to my father, who was in charge of everything. Mm -hmm. And I had to do an accounting. Did I get paid for anything? No, that was just part <laughs> of the part of the family deal. So, as I was taking care of the Coke machine, following my like twice a week, I I would go to the Coke machine, refill it, take the money out, count it, and give it to my father. I noticed there were like old dates and so on, and this was, of course way back when, when we had actually silver coins and, and all of that before uh, today's modern change. When, when, when we actually had coins. We had coins. Yeah, right. Yeah. They were not just digital coins. They were actual <laughs> coins. And so uh, I'd sort through them. And I noticed, you know, old dates and so on. So I, I asked my father if I could replace some of the coins with, with money and, and I could start collecting coins. So I did that, and and every now and then I would find a particularly rare date. So by the time I was nine, I had found thousands of dollars worth of rare nickels and rare dimes and started studying them and trading them. So by the time I was 10, I had like $5,000 worth of <laughs> uh, money, actual money from coin collecting and so on. And that's kind of how I got my start in business. And did you start a 401k with that money, John? Did you? Uh... Uh, not exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, do you still have any of those coins? You know, I, I do. Tucked away. It's in of those old blue 
books if you yeah. ever were a coin yeah. collector. You'd, you'd fill each slot with the various dates and mint marks. And I have some of those. Yeah, back back from way back when. So, so what are the most valuable coins that you have today? You tried to sell me a coin that had like 10 BC on it. I didn't think it was legitimate. I just worried. <laughs> yes. It said the date was 10 BC. So. BC. Yeah. It said 10 BC right on it. Okay. You tried to sell it to me for a thousand dollars, but I was right. something about it told me it wasn't <laughs> legit. But that's, yeah. <laughs> well, no, I, I actually. Got some gems. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So the, a 1916 D. Mercury dime was what the key one of the key ones I I found, and then there was a three legged buffalo nickel. If you remember the old buffalo nickels, sure. One of the dies was broken when they stamped out the coins, and the buffalo only had three legs, and that became kind of this rare collector coin. And I came across a few of those in the mm -hmm. coke machine that nobody ever. <laughs> so uh, that's how we got started. But later on in life, uh, I, I read the book by Suetonius, The Twelve Caesars, speaking of ancient coins, mm -hmm. and put together uh, the Twelve Caesars in a gold arias. It was, it was really quite a, quite a collection, and I sold many of those early on in my career. And what's the, the silver dollars that you have? There's only like 10 of them in the world or something. Remember, you were telling me about there's some... There, there are some silver dollars. There's there's an interesting one. This goes to politics as well, which I enjoy. Mm -hmm. um, is the four dollars Stella? This was in the mid 1800s when the Latin Monetary Union uh, was forming, mostly in Europe, around kind of that socialist kind of uh, idea of a one world government. So the Latin Monetary Union was going to be a one world currency. And the U.S. was, of course, isolationist to that. But there was an experimental $4 coin called the Stella. There were only 116, I think is the number, a small, very small number mm -hmm. of those were like experimentally minted. Mm -hmm. They're one of the classic rarities in, in U.S. coins. And I, I, did, I did trade many of those over the years. So You still have one? I don't have one. Because okay. it was worth way too much money. They're worth about a half a million dollars today each. I got a bunch of them in my drawer. I'll sell you one if you want. Okay, thank you. All right. I got a bag of them here. Right. <laughs> um, okay, so from Amsterdam to Boca. Well, my, you know how many? Dad, yeah, how many stops along the way? Many stops along the way, and you know, like any family had kind of its turbulence. My parents yeah. divorced. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, I ended up, uh, going to Hialeah high school kind of to, uh, jump through a lot of hoops there, uh, which interestingly, the time I was there was at the peak of the Cuban migration during, you know, that long period after the Castro regime kind of sure. overtook Cuba and, and caused the great exodus. Uh, so there were 2000 kids in my graduating class, so, not just my high school, but my graduating class. So it was it was a very interesting and disruptive time in you know the late sixties, early seventies, and so on. A very very uh, pivotal time in kind of American cultural life as well. So from there, I went to Florida State, then on to the University of Texas, and then to graduate school uh, at Claremont. 
So uh, did Florida State have a four year program then? They they did. They recently converted that time from <laughs> just a, a girls' school to a co-ed school. Uh, but those girls sure could play football. You know. <laughs> did you were, were you in the clown school then, or were you a more serious uh, cerebral pursuit? I, I had three majors. I was a political science major, uh, an economics major, and a religion major. So, so I, I carried a twenty one hours typically. Uh, every we were on a quarter system uh, and got through uh, school. I was a janitor at the Capitol. Uh, so every afternoon I headed off to clean offices uh, at the state Capitol. It still needs a good scrubbing, I think, in Tallahassee, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 Tallahassee's quite the place these days. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so your summer jobs, I'm sure, in high school and college were nice and cushy. What uh, what'd you do? I, I was I was a laborer. In fact, at, at lunch today, I was uh, I I could speak a little Spanish, mm-hmm. and at that time, uh, very very, I was the only white guy. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this story. It's kind of a funny story. Um, I had a full scholarship from the state of Florida. Uh, I graduated in high school in 1971. And I, in May of that year, I got a letter from the state of Florida revoking my scholarship due to affirmative action. Mm-hmm. So you could, you know, I was very dis- discouraged because you know, mm-hmm. I needed that scholarship. Mm-hmm. So they said, please find and close your student loan application. So I worked construction during the summers, both as a high school student and as a college student. So I go to the laborers union, um, uh, AFL-CIO, and take my number to be called out on a job. And so I'm waiting to be called out, and I'm just hanging around the union hall. And there's a picture of guys holding up checks that say scholarships. So I inquire at the window. They say, well, they're really for children of union members. I said, what about actually union members? <laughs> they said, let me check. So the woman goes to the back, goes back, and says, yeah, you can apply, but you have to have good grades. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, let me get my transcript from my high school, and I'll bring it in tomorrow. So I did that. And I was the only white guy mm-hmm. in the laborers union, mm-hmm. and I got three times the scholarship from mm-hmm. – uh, the union that I did from the state of Florida. So it was really one of those great juxtapositions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, within the culture at that time. Sure, sure, sure. I was the, uh, the un, unexpected benefit. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's great. So you went from uh, Florida State to U of Texas. That's right. To study economics, right? No, I, I actually studied public administration there. Okay. It was part of the LBJ school. LBJ school, sure. Famous, famous school. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, really enjoyed my time in Texas. Um, and then went on to the Claremont Graduate School in Southern California, st- doing economics. Mm-hmm. But I hate to admit it, I ran out of money and dropped out. So, you know, that it happens. Yeah. How did you refill the coffers? <laughs> Well, you know, I, I did a stint for a while, about three and a half years. That's how I ended up living for a while in India, um, working for like a Christian version of the Peace Corps, mm-hmm. uh, placing doctors, teachers, engineers into various countries. So 
Well, I was just a kid of 23, 24 years old, mm -hmm. but I traveled to 40 different countries and not like tourist destinations. These were pretty tough spots. Uh, I was detained once because I, I lost my way in Thailand mm -hmm. uh, for a couple of days. They thought I was either a drug dealer or a DEA agent. <laughs> uh, convinced that I wasn't. Finally, they believed me and let me go. Uh, I was in a building in the south of the Philippines on the island of Mindanao. And there was a lot of turbulence. There was a kind of a, an insurrection among the Islamic population then. So I leave the government building where I negotiated a position for some of these people to come there. And the building blows up, knocked me down. It was, <laughs> so there was some really <laughs> raucous times back in the day. Uh, but uh, then I made it back here to Boken and went to work for a friend of mine, actually in the, the coin business, Bill Youngerman, very good man. Mm -hmm. uh, and a few years later, started my own business. That's where Slavic Investment Corporation uh, was formed and what are kind of the origins of where we get into the PEO industry. Yeah. So tell me about your brother-in-law, Mike, who uh, knew Ray Kroc. He knew Ray Kroc. And he was in Roanoke, Virginia, as I recall. Mike was, right? He was in yes. West, Western good, Virginia. Good memory. Good memory. Right? Yeah. And he uh, and he uh, started a McDonald's franchise and then had a bunch. And again, I, I remember him telling me the movie about Ray Kroc. He said Michael Keaton, I think, played him. He said he nailed him. He's like, if you see that movie, that was Ray Kroc. Again, he knew him very well. So then Mike, I guess, moved to South Florida, right? Got I was the first to come here. And then my mother migrated here. And then my sister and brother-in-law came here. And... Mike lent me $65,000 and I paid him back within six months to start the Slavic Investment Corporation. What year, what year did this, was this that you started? This is 35 years ago. So, wow. what year that is. so uh, it'd be like 1985. Okay. The $65,000, nothing to sneeze at today, but it was a whole lot more. It was a material amount of money at the time. And, Basically, I started writing a financial newsletter back in the day and um, printed it up in a print shop. You know, there was no internet. Yeah. No, yeah. no. So I would print up this newsletter and just distribute it around town here in Boca Raton. And the phone started ringing. I got a little bit of a following. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I developed a client base, um, then developed a model of kind of the markets and so on, uh, formed a broker dealer not too long after that and started managing clients money i would do uh, a, a weekly or bi-weekly uh seminar at a restaurant uh with older retired people mostly mm -hmm. from uh the very jewish dominated uh enclaves here century mm -hmm. village is what it's called mm -hmm. for five dollars they they got <laughs> i paid for lunch you got a free lunch yeah they said, oh, John, we love coming here. We love to hear you talk, the whole thing. I said, can we come back? I said, sure, but you just have to bring somebody just like you. <laughs> so I, I had full lunches uh, and a full calendar for the first several years. So, but, are, by the way, are, are there any older retired people in Florida? Not anymore. 
anymore. All the New York and Northeast migration to Florida, a thousand people from New York alone moved to Florida every day. Thank you for not saying New Jersey. So anyhow, I interrupted your story. So they started to come and come to lunch and everybody bring one. So it was very busy. And they had a record-keeping platform for 401k plans. Found that interesting. So as a young broker-dealer without like the wirehouse, you know, uh, like Merrill Lynch and other major brokerage companies give a lot of support to their people, I didn't have that. So I kind of leaned into uh, the support that the various fund complexes would give me. So Kemper was one of them. They've been bought and sold a number of times, but... You might remember the Kemper Calvary from the old TV commercials. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, they sent me to school called ProStar. That was kind of how to learn the 401k business. I found it pretty fascinating. So I started working on developing a 401k business. At the same time, here in Florida, the PEO industry was just beginning to percolate. Staff mm-hmm. leasing over in uh, the Bradenton area was like mm-hmm. a big company, but lots of other companies were springing up all over the place. And I found that to be really interesting. And so, and you, you sought out, you sought out T. Joe Willie. I did. I did. You know, a fellow that, that worked for me uh, at that time said, you know, we should get an expert to come in here and, and guide us in the process. So I said, that's a good idea. So T. Joe Willie, kind of the intellectual founder of the PEO concept, right from the earliest days, and he only recently passed away, uh, came in and we spent two days together. And so I was pretty anxious to kind of start a PEO because it seemed really interesting to me. He said, no, you shouldn't do that. You should serve the industry rather than be the industry. Mm -hmm. And so um, he called up uh, Kirk Scoggins, a name that maybe some might remember, and a few other people in the Tampa area. Uh, I drove over the next week and said, I don't know a thing about this, but we're going to learn as we go. Please be patient. He said, sure. So the Joe, T. Joe Willie ended up uh, helping us land our first clients and it really was about a, a one to two year learning curve to get up to speed, to understand the complexities of the PEO, to understand the 401k within that context as well. So what we've really become is like the dry goods salesman to the miners <laughs> all along the way. So it was a, it was a very fortuitous uh, and very grateful to T. Joe for his uh, direction and introduction to us. But, of course, that's in the the mid to late 90s. Mm -hmm. A major PEO out of Texas uh, had a single employer plan, and the IRS and the Department of Labor scrutinized that plan. And as a result of that scrutiny, uh, issued the revenue procedure in 2002. And uh, that was the first sort of federal recognition of a PEO. Yeah. Uh, so interestingly, the 401k kind of served as the catalyst for recognition of the PEO as an entity yeah. uh, and mandated the multiple employer 
particular format, which we had uh, anticipated years before. Mm-hmm. So most of our clients at that time were already in the multiple employer format. So they were mm-hmm. almost uh, mm-hmm. instantly compliant uh, in the new regulations. Yeah. So uh, give me some in numbers, if you can, some comparison from those years, you know, number of clients, you know, uh, you know, uh, a number of dollars uh, versus today. Like what sort of growth have you seen in the industry since then? Yeah, we started out with, you know, from zero, really, with those yeah. first few plans. Uh, and, you know, through the years, learned and grew. I, I'll say one thing, kind of as a an encouragement to my fellow vendors. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started out, you know, maybe because I was motivated to maybe start a PEO, when I decided, okay, we're going to serve the PEO, when... Um, Melissa and Barry and all those who had run the various meetings through the years, they were far less today then than they are today. Mm-hmm. I would always go to the breakout sessions. Mm-hmm. I would learn stuff that I didn't, had no application whatsoever to the 401k directly. But I would encourage any vendor to do that because then you learn the whole, the whole organization, the whole uh, structure of the PEO and what its business model can and cannot do and what changes are necessary as the economy changes and so on. So yep. that, those are uh, the key things that in the earliest days was, I think, very helpful to Slavic because not only did we kind of learn the business model, we learned the language. Yes. We, we could understand where the 401k would fit into the whole business model of the PEO. And, and then we worked hard to make that fit a smooth and easy one as much as possible. Yeah, that's such great advice because I do, I see people stay in their lanes sometimes or stay in their silo. And you think, I kind of would want to know what else my customer knows, what's on their minds, what are their pressures, right? So that I'm not talking to them about X, knowing that, why is looming so large in their world and being naive to that, right? It's like, you know, like even like today, like the ERTC is such a huge issue. Like, I'd want to know that. Yes. Even, no matter what I do, no matter what it is that I sell into this space, it sure is good to be fluent in all of that stuff. I think that's well, great. Here, here's kind of a current example. You know, the risk conference is historically almost concerned exclusively with workers' comp. Mm-hmm. But um, in next month is the risk conference. I have the honor, honestly, the honor of being the keynote speaker there. Um, and and that's far out of my lane, workers' mm-hmm. comp. But the risk conference is certainly much broader today than just kind of how you how a PEO deals with the issue of workers' comp. It it spans across a wide array of different risks that the um, uh, the PEO faces. So that's what my talk yeah. was. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and again, uh, you know, and we, we just had a webinar on our, our most recent uh, member survey, which was great. But, uh, you know, in terms of, of you know, what issues are top of mind for you and what issues should NAPIO be paying attention to, you know, uh, the last we do the survey every three years. And the last time we did, I think cyber was like single digits. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> Trust me, it's double digits this right. year. It's a perfect example of that's risk. That's yes. a big risk issue. And it's something that touches everybody, right? Something that's top of mind for you, for every PEO, for, for everybody, right? Well, I was given a, a gift um, last week that uh, would, is very helpful in my presentation next month. And that's the banking crisis. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, you know, the, the banking crisis, which really does make a lot of sense in terms of, of where we are in the economy and how it's getting there. Uh, kind of my reordering theme of last year with a couple of presentations I made talked about, you know, the unexpected reordering points. Mm -hmm. Like two weeks ago, no one gave a thought about the banking yeah. issues. Didn't didn't think about it with, at all. Now it's the only thing on the news. Right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's a whole risk spectrum that PEOs now have to deal with and think through, particularly, I think probably the smaller boutique, you know, PEO that's been in place for a long time probably uses a regional or community bank. Yeah. And, you know, they, they, there's a lot of risk that is sort of rippling through uh, the industry uh, in this, in this time period. So, yeah, let's stay on that for a second. So where's that headed? And I saw your, uh, your blog post uh, and helpfully, I think, corrected your math there. You're welcome. Um, but so much that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I know you look to me as really the math guy. So I appreciate I, that. That tells you a lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, where are we headed on this banking thing? It seemed to me like at least you know, maybe Washington got it right for once and that they tried to uh, uh, to address it systemically and not just one thing. Um, but I don't know. I mean, that's that's more your wheelhouse than mine. Where's that headed? Are we in calmer waters or or not? Uh, it, it just depends on how widespread this issue is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes you think it's like a contagion and kind of you get kind of the run on the bank thing. I'm not quite sure that's really the case at this stage. Um, you know, the, the major component that is troublesome for banks, especially as I mentioned in the blog post, there's, there are two stress tests mm -hmm. that are administered by the Federal Reserve. Money center banks like JP Morgan or Bank of America have a much more rigorous stress test mm -hmm. reserves that they have to have on hand and how they conduct their investment portfolios and their lending policies all go into the stress mm -hmm. test mm -hmm. are much more rigorous than they are for regional banks or community banks. Mm -hmm. yep. And frankly, it's fair that it be that way because yep. Most small and medium-sized businesses that get started will look to a bank of that uh, ilk to help them get started. Mm -hmm. There was a, a local bank here that we left uh, several years ago, but they really helped us get started. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, um, to be honest, they called me into the bank and said, nice, nice boardroom and lunch and everything, Mr. Slavic." The banking regulators say we have to dismiss you as a client because you're too big for the bank. <laughs> so it was the first time I felt like Jed Clampett. Uh, <laughs> so, 
So anyway, we ended up at that stage moving to JP Morgan. Mm -hmm. and, but I think a lot of PEOs are probably pretty much oriented for that community or regional bank because that's that's where they would do business. Yeah. So the stress test is lower for those category of banks. So the risk for banks is in who they lend money to. So SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, um, lent money to uh, high-risk technology companies, uh, often crypto companies, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of thing. And that's been a very turbulent environment for the last couple of years. So their, in, their loan portfolios suffered, but they also went out further on the yield curve. And so they were getting that extra 50 basis points of return mm -hmm. in on the yield curve. Now, Federal Reserve has gone through eight different uh, rate increases for a 500 basis point increase just in the last in the last year. That's the sharpest increase in interest rates in history. Even back with the Paul Volcker days, interest rates were much higher, yeah. but they moved up more gradually. Yeah. This is the sharpest increase. And so what this does, this inverse relationship between bonds and interest rates, it killed the bond prices mm -hmm. held in these portfolios. One statistic that's important is the bond market is four times the size of the stock market. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just to get a kind of sense of proportion. Yeah. So when these portfolios are hit, both from a loan perspective, as well as from where they are on the yield curve, it puts them in great jeopardy. Yeah. yeah. And like what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, billions of dollars exited the bank sort of yeah. kind of quietly about two weeks ago. Yeah. And it was like a run on the bank. Same thing with Signature Bank. Yeah. So... Is it because those two banks were unique? No, I don't think so. So, you know, uh, the Credit Suisse in trouble because the Saudis are not oh, no longer back Switzerland. Mm -hmm. so Bank Switzerland stepped in to be the backstop there. They put in like $50 billion or something, right? But yes, it, it shows you the fragility that exists today in the banking system. So where this could go, maybe it's just stopped here. Mm -hmm. Probably the Federal Reserve uh, will announce a rate increase next week of only 25 basis points or maybe not at all. Yeah. When yeah. previously the expectation was 50 basis points. Yeah. But the important component, when the, if you look for a silver lining in all this, mm -hmm. um, the banking crisis by itself is disinflationary mm -hmm. because it's automatically tamping down economic activity because sure. everyone is, is sort of pulling back and kind of being a bit guarded by itself that will prove disinflationary it's probably worth uh 100 or 150 basis points yep. Yep. of a rate increase that we're getting unexpectedly through this crisis yeah so let me ask you and this was in your blog post uh should 401k holders worry what does this portend for 401k? I thought this was an important point in your blog post. Well, uh, it it really doesn't affect the 401k directly. And you why? Know? Well, because most 401k investments 
are in mutual funds, well diversified. And uh, generally the, the, the bond portfolios are government-backed securities, federal government-backed securities, which are, I don't want to say immune to the banking crisis, but the threat of collapse just doesn't exist mm -hmm. within the investment platform of the 401k. Where risk does exist is just the decline of the market, both the stock and bond markets in this unstable environment. You might suffer some loss, mm -hmm. but it isn't like the the catastrophic loss that right. out with the collapse of the bank and you end up losing all your money. Right. Yeah, I thought that was a great point. What uh, What is the state of the PEO industry now and what's the outlook? Again, you've been in this industry a long time. Well, what's the, what's the outlook? For, for a very long time, I think the uh, industry has kind of settled into sort of the business as usual component right up until the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And almost all businesses like that because we had a very stable period of, you know, 10 years since the Great Recession of pretty consistent growth through Democratic and Republican administrations alike. So it was a, a very uh, uh, good period for small and medium-sized businesses. It was very good for PEOs. You know, that Pat, that's mostly your tenure. Yep. Uh, you know, it was a, a pretty consistently growing GDP year after year. And, and by the way, John, I'm, I'm responsible for that GDP growth and every other good uh, trend that happened. Yes. Since yes. I got here. I just want yes. I just want to be clear about it. that wasn't a happenstance. That was that was all me. So as, as I recall, it was on the search committee. You're welcome. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, thank God, right? Yeah, that's good. And and I had some very stiff competition, as I understand. You did. You did. So. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be the next episode. Maybe the next episode. So yeah. yeah, and for everybody's benefit, John loves to regale me and anyone who will listen with the weak competition uh, when I was selected. So it was, you know, people, uh, English wasn't their first language. Some didn't complete high school, et cetera. Et cetera. And, then, and then me, there was a welder, as I recall, and an auto mechanic. My and favorite was the librarian. The yeah. librarian, yes. <laughs> yes. And you're kicking yourself. And Pat, Pat, you'd be the guy that talked in the library, right? So I was, <laughs> I was. They, they, they told me shush all the time, yes. Um, so, yeah, so anyhow, great. Where uh, was I before this uh, diversion? Into yes, the, the GDP <laughs> GDP growth since I arrived. I had to jump in and take credit for that. Okay. That's, that's where good. you were. Yes. Okay. Yes. But anyway, the pandemic hits, and, of course, everything shuts down. Now, the, the effect of the pandemic was very uneven across the economy. Mm -hmm. You know, and basically those who have a college education – were much more prone to work remotely. Those that had high school education or less generally had to go to the place of work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you get this uneven impact from uh, the shutdowns. Mm -hmm. So a whole new economy begins to emerge here with the remote work environment. I can see you're probably at your oceanfront estate today uh, doing oh. a broadcast. Uh, one, one of several. I'm actually in the office today, so. Oh, you are? Oh, okay. I have uh, so many homes to keep track of, John. It is hard to keep track of me. I'll admit that, okay. but I'm in the office today. Mid, I, I, I understand your pain. I can feel your pain. 
<laughs> Where were we? So, but, but I want to make one one point here that this disruption is more than anyone could ever have estimated mm-hmm. in the past. The only parallel we have is like the roaring 20s, mm-hmm. 1920s, that followed the Spanish flu epidemic in mm-hmm. 1918. It kind of sets the stage for kind of a reset of yeah. the economy through the 20s, which uh, interestingly ended with the collapse of the stock market in 29, yeah. ushering in a decade-long depression. Yeah, I'm not saying that's going to happen here, but to give a sense of proportion between the monetary stimulus from the Federal Reserve and the fiscal stimulus from the federal government, there was $6 trillion pumped into the economy within the span of about 12 months, 12 to 18 months in that range. Now, to give you a sense of perspective of what a trillion dollars is, if one second equals a dollar, how long does it take to get to a trillion? 32,709 years. That's longer than recorded history. So six of those were pumped into the economy in in very fast fashion. Now, there's still a lot of money around. Partially, that would account for also the rapid consolidation that took place in our industry with many PEOs selling and being bought by private equity and lots of Mm -hmm. transactions going on. Sure. Because the price of money has never been cheaper in the history of the United States than it was like a year, a year and a half ago. That makes yep. sense. Yep. So you get that perfect correlation yep. between consolidation and the expansion of money yep. and, the, and the price of money, which was almost zero at that, yep. at that stage. So there's, it's not surprising with that much stimulus, we're going to get inflation. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to be hard to see why this is unfolding as it is. You get this this level of disruption is changing the state of business in America. And accordingly, to answer your question earlier, the PEO model has to change as well. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, kind of the traditional sales model of, you know, courting a company for a couple of months and, Mm-hmm. showing the various advantages that the PEO can bring to the small business is going to have to probably change as well because remote work is here to stay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we see what 30,000 people at Amazon signed a petition to <laughs> stay home. Yeah. Elon Musk even re- reversed his position on forcing everybody back into the office. So this is a permanent change as yeah. a result of yeah. what we've been through. And the adaptation of the PEO model, I think, have to follow because much of it was built around kind of the workplace. Mm-hmm. And now it will have to be built around the the employee, mm-hmm. the the worker of what of what he or she does and how that's going to be administrated in this um remote environment that is emerging here. So again, so, this is the intersection of technology and also the more or less invention of new models within the co-employment arrangement mm-hmm. 
One thing, I'll, I'll make two points here. Uh, the first one is the U.S. is the only country in the world that administrates benefits through the workplace. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Now, everything else is in a centralized, more or less socialist concept mm -hmm. uh, in, in terms of how employees or citizens receive their benefits. Yeah. U.S. Is, is quite different in that regard. Yep. And so the burden that's placed on the owner is a real one. Yep. But it, why do we have such a vibrant economy in the whole world? It's because it revolves around the workplace and the enterprise that that represents. Yeah, absolutely. So PEO plays such a vital role in, I don't want to get too philosophical here, but really in maintaining uh, the work site as the benefit administration point or distribution point. Yep. And it really allows for the free market <laughs> and the entrepreneurial innovations, inventions, and so on yep. to create an efficiency that no other country has. Yep. Even look at our own country that for centrally administered uh, benefits like Social Security mm -hmm. and Medicare, it's it's our Veterans Administration. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it is littered with inefficiency from yeah. from, yeah. from every uh, dimension. Yep. So the PEO industry has a lot to do with the success of small businesses. As we sure. sure, sure. But 70% of all patents are issued to companies with 50 or fewer. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So it really is the innovation engine. Absolutely. Free enterprise system in America. And the PEO does the, uh, a central work in facilitating that. And so the outlook, are you bullish or bearish about this industry? No, actually, for the industry, I'm very bullish because we can look back on, on times of transition and times of change, and even times where there was great political division, let's say, over Obamacare. Mm -hmm. You know, many, many in... Uh, from a political or philosophical perspective, would be adverse mm -hmm. to Obamacare. But from an industry perspective, it, it was a windfall because yep. it it drove small companies, medium-sized companies in huge numbers to the PEO solution. Well, and closer to home for you also are these states with the mandated retirement plans, right? And if you got a PEO, you're going to meet that that uh, uh, mandate, you know? Yes. Um, so same thing, while people may be a little lukewarm about mandates, the same thing, those those will be, not will be, are a shot in the arm to this industry. Well, it, it is, and, and I think it's an important element here because those are blue states that have put, mm -hmm. in a sense is, is the employer mandate very similar to what Obamacare was contemplating. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, uh, but red states, are also uh, migrating to that model as well. Yep. Yep. I think it's well recognized that without um, kind of that automatic payroll component, yes. it's very difficult for most Americans to save on their own and, and be ready for retirement. So we have an entire generations of people kind of lurching into retirement, depending solely upon Social Security. Yeah. Which, yeah. which is a is very inadequate to live the kind of life that most people want to yeah. in retirement. 
Yeah. So hence the the mandate is there, and we're we're seeing a wide proliferation of that state to state. Yep. Secure 2.0 uh, sure. you know, will be implemented in the next couple of years. And that's where you get auto enrollment and yep. auto yep. escalation. So I think systemically uh, that's going to be positioning the PEO to be one of the few conduits to facilitate that requirement. And frankly, yep. that requirement is an important one because, yeah, sure. uh, you know, without it, uh, we're going to see, large swaths of the population languishing in yes. pretty close to poverty levels without the ability to save and prepare for yeah. retirement. Yeah. So let me ask you, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll bring it in the home stretch. Let me ask you, what is your advice to new entrants into this space? Either as PEOs or as service providers, What's your advice? I'll go to the one about, you know, sort of uh, taking the 360 degree view, like learning about the industry, going to the breakouts. That's that's a great bit of advice. It really is. But for somebody who's getting into this space for the first time, what's your advice then? Well, you know, I, I think that the foundation that has been laid in the last, you know, 25 or 30 years in this industry is really an important one because it does uh, make the PEO kind of the engine for facilitating small and medium-sized businesses to, to deal with the requirements that are placed on them, mm -hmm. rightfully so. But in the remote environment, it's going to be quite different. And uh, the, the mindset and the requirement of the emerging generation here is going to require more self-service. It's going to require more intuitive sort of flows through the process. Mm -hmm. And this is where the technology piece will have to be quite innovative. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 in the past, most PEOs have relied upon the software provided by like Prism or mm -hmm. uh, various other uh, providers, um, ISOL mm -hmm. you know, and others, um, to be the technology solution. I think that's an inadequate view because they're going to have to really look to see what in fact is happening uh, at the worksite level mm -hmm. and that the technology application to reach that, that burgeoning population, that mm -hmm. transitional population uh, will probably have to be developed and redeveloped and matured all along different lines than we have been for the relatively stable period that we've been in up until now. Yeah, that's that's a great that's a great point to end on, and some great insight. I really do appreciate it. So my my Timex tells me that it's time for us to wrap up. Uh, I don't know. Do you have your Casio on today, or do you have your Timex watch today? Uh, no, yeah, it's a it's probably just a, a typical Timex because it takes a licking and keeps on ticking. Yes, it does. That that's great. You should have been in marketing. So yeah, next time we'll talk about John's watch collection and the other things he collects. Um, you know, yeah, the other things. Let's just leave it at that. Uh, like friends, you know, and other other things that he collects. Uh, but yeah, no, thank you, pal. I really appreciate it. You didn't disappoint. Uh, we, I think, we kept the personal barbs to a minimum today. I think that's that's a first. You know. Well, yes, we we did, Pat, because we're in a, we're in a controlled environment here. But yes. just you wait. <laughs> yes, I know, I know. So the next time we're going to plan a couple hours 
and you can talk about blockchain. So that's, that's, you know, I'd love to. I'd love to. I, yeah. I, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I do think it is such the future of our industry. Yeah. So let's just leave that there. Can we? <laughs> so thanks to John Slavic of Slavic 401k. I really appreciate you being willing to subject yourself to this. Uh, again, didn't disappoint. Some great uh, insights and uh, a little bit about your background, which I'm sure uh, not uh, not everyone knew. So uh, it's it's great, and those some of those sticky coins are still around and still worth some money. So uh, that's right. But thank you, Pat, for having me. It's an honor to be included in the the first uh, sleeve of people that you have. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you, pal. I appreciate it. Area world. Yes, thanks very much. Okay. 